Good morning again, Rabbi. Good morning, Joe. And good morning, Rachel. Good morning. Once again, we are back with Rabbi and Rachel. Uh, to Can you guess what we're talking about? <laughs> what do you think we're talking about? <laughs> we are continuing the subject of food and how it affects us in culture. And of course, uh, the most important aspect of any food is taste. Not that it nourishes you, not that it's good for you, but that it tastes good because that's what we go. I don't want to have something good right now. I don't want to say I have something healthy. I want to have something that tastes good. That's when we have cravings. And the cravings are what lead us along. So where, where do we begin with that? Well, I just want to point out that in my 7,500 year career in hospice and as a chaplain, not a single person who was dying and I heard their confession, not a single person said to me, I should have eaten more kale. Everyone said to me, pizza, ice cream, Indian food, Chinese food, everyone named something that had unique flavors or tastes to it. But no one ever regretted not eating enough kale. I just want to throw that out there. Or tofu, for that matter. I've so already this... eaten all the kale I want to eat. <laughs> the kale is not a favorite. It's a little bitter for me. But there's a science behind that, too. Something... Uh very um, ingrained in our genetics. Uh, I don't know, you guys ever hear the word uh, cheese crack? What? <laughs> yeah, cheese has the same properties as cocaine does in our brains. It releases the same endorphins, the same addictive quality, which is why pe uh, pizza is just such a commonly eaten food, why people crave it so much. Uh, the same thing with most dairy, actually. So my mom calls it dairy crack. So there's that. And then there's also just the fact that a lot of spices, I mean, they, they tingle our taste buds. They activate the trigeminal nerves in our mouths. They make us want it more. Sour foods, especially. Um, the Chinese would feed people sour foods with lemon or pickled plum if they were sick because it made them want to eat. It actually activated their uh, hunger. So that, but then the food is really a medicine. Mm -hmm. especially in China um, and India where they have Ayurvedic healing and everything is tied very deeply into their spices and the kinds of combinations of food they eat where they believe that this would help balance you and there's a, there is a true science behind that especially in Ayurvedic healing um, I think it was maybe cayenne pepper that brought your um, your blood, blood pressure down or is it cinnamon I don't know there's a lot <laughs> Yeah, I've always been fascinated, though, you mentioned pepper and heavily spiced food. And I've read several different theories as to if your food was on the verge of not being edible or you were in a hotter climate and the food spoiled quicker, you would add pepper or spices so you wouldn't notice that you're eating rotten food. How much truth is there to that? There's a lot. Um, so back in the medieval or the Renaissance where people didn't have access to a lot of spices, speaking of which, we are beyond wealthy rich compared to our ancestors. We have these spice cabinets and they would just look at us and be like, look at what luxury they're living in, where they just have a whole canister of cinnamon and sugar. Back then, honey was actually something that was more easily come by. So that's where you have the words honeyed meat. And that was uh, a phrase usually used to describe 
something rotten or something um, unpalatable that someone was trying to cover over to make it so. And that's because what they had to do, a lot of peasants who couldn't master the art of preserving their meat or making the jerky would put honey on near rotting meat to make the flavor more palatable to eat. So if I go to a restaurant that's very spicy, I should be suspicious then that they're feeding me rotten food and they want to cover it up with that. No, no, no. Well, it's probably not the same. Spices in other cultures had other meanings. So in in India, like I said, and I'm almost certain now that it's red pepper, brings down your blood pressure. And it's also just the kind of climate. So colder climates actually wanted spicier food because when you bring the temperature down, it's harder to taste certain things, which is why like whenever I make ice cream, I really load in whatever I'm steeping the ice cream flavor with. If I did one banana, you wouldn't be able to taste the banana and the ice cream later. It's got to be like a whole bunch of bananas. And that's the same concept. So in the Sichuan province of China, um, they like this hot and numbing spice, but that's also because they had the hot and numbing pepper available and that was their black pepper. And if you've never had hot and numbing, it's really fun. And that activates, like I said, that trigeminal nerve where it's not just a flavor, it's a feeling, um, in your jaw, your tongue, the tingle, the numbing, and it makes the food interesting because humans have always looked for new things, innovation, something new to excite. And what's more exciting than all these different spices? Well, why is the worst food on our planet come from England? What, why is their food not palatable? The most popular restaurants in England are the Indian restaurants or Chinese because British food, why? The, The Brits have no taste buds and what's wrong with them? Traditionally, before they started colonizing, they just didn't have a lot available. They had, it's a very rocky, rough land, very rainy. Um, It wasn't a good climate for growing lots of different spices. It it just wasn't indigenous. They had root vegetables and they had livestock. And I think the closest sugar they had was honey. And then they started getting sugar plantations elsewhere. Which explains why the Scots have haggis, because they wanted to have something that, that tasted like rotten food, I guess. I don't. <laughs> well, no, that's what they had available. So I'm a big believer. If you kill an animal, you use all of it, and that's definitely what they did. People discovered a long time ago, and this is the same for um, uh, Africa and uh, is Israel. Even I think did this. We would take the sheep's stomach and dry it, and I think it was actually in India. Some and this happened across the spice roads um, or the Silk Road where if someone was trying to transport milk in a sheep's stomach and the enzymes from the stomach cultured that milk into yogurt. And when that made it, when that happened in India, that's where they really started um, using yogurt in most of their foods. It was, that's just a lot of food inventions came upon by accident. Accident. Yeah, but again, I'm really fascinated. Who was the first person that looked at a lobster and said, this would be a good thing to eat. So, Joe, why I don't you try this problem? Because <laughs> what, what accident would lead someone? I, I didn't know that about yogurt, but that makes sense. Kind of an accidental discovery. The other thing that's fascinating are mushrooms. How many people died uh, or not eating? And how did that come about? Or passed away with a smile on their face. Depending on whether they were magic mushrooms or regular mushrooms. 
honestly, it's, it's human curiosity. There's no real, like there was um, a scientist who ate a lot of inedible things. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but he would eat string, marbles, uh, dryer lint, just to discover and document what it would do to the human body, how long it would take to digest. You, you know the Tide Pod Challenge. Humans are generally just a curious, uh, risky bunch. Well, and now we have TV shows uh, to see how, how spicy you can stand eating food. And you can now get chocolate with Tabasco and cayenne pepper in it. And there's at least one restaurant in the Rockville area that has the, um, the ghost pepper challenge where you have, you get your dinner for free if you eat the whole pepper and down a shot of vodka in under five minutes or something like that. Uh, people like the challenge. <laughs> they like to be a, a little stupid for lack of a better term. But they, you know, the General Chow, there was no such person as General Chow. So General Chow's chicken. And I think that's, that's, a neat thing to talk about is the American taste buds and how we have taken some really good spices and foods and Americanized it. Do you want to address for a minute the American taste bud? So the American taste bud, a lot of the reason why we have something like General, uh, General South Chicken is because there was a lot of uh, xenophobia back when these we were getting immigrants, unfortunately. Um, so they would make these foods that were exotic, but they made it palatable to the American palate and the American sensibility. So they would come up with a logo, something that they could brand and advertise to people. And it was easy to put a face to something like General South. And then I think I mentioned when we were discussing taste buds previously in Montana, Europeans have a lot of salivatory glands. We make more saliva than most uh, some Eastern cultures. So we like very dry food because we have enough saliva that it's not like eating chalk. But then you have like Japanese people have a little less. And so they like very moist foods. So then you have a very soft castella bread, mochi, things that are much softer and easy for them to eat without drinking a butt ton of water. So we were, again, we're all human beings and depending on climate, maybe that would be a way to look at it. The climate helps determine the foods we're eating. It's not that we're different. It's that the climate either doesn't allow it or our bodies developed a little bit differently so that we have our taste buds. But I, I think if you think about American Chinese food, it's how Chinese... Is it not Chinese at all? There's so many different cooking um, types, so many different uh, regions in China that build up or uh, comp what's the word for comprise their pillars of cooking. Off the top of my head, you have Hunan, Sichuan, uh, Hunan. Did I say Hunan twice? Hunan, Sichuan. We won't hold it against you, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> but how authentic is when I go to an, a food for Indian? How authentic is that compared to Indian food in India? Um, it's closer. Uh, and it really depends on the kind of Indian restaurant you go to. Like we have two kinds here, right in Bel Air. Uh, the Indian garden, I would say, is pretty close. And they're very sensitive to the, the common Bel Air palate. And they ask you how spicy you want your food. Right. But they use a lot of the traditional spices. And it's lots. I couldn't name half of them if I tried. 
you go oh, into a, if you go into an Indian market and you ask them, do the, do you have curry powder? They just sort of look at you funny. And that's because there's different um, curry powders, curry blends per region in India. You can have a completely different taste if you go 20 miles down the road. And it's just because that's the blend of their family. Well, whether you go 20 miles down the road or you go right next door, the one thing that's always in good taste is Rabbi and his observations. And thank you too, Rachel, for your uh, insight into all these different cultures. We're gonna to have to do another one of these. I think I wanna come back and I'd like to spend another session, Rachel, talking to you about memory. And we've talked about food and spices and special ho holidays. I think I'd like to talk to you about when I eat something, what's it's triggering something or I look forward to it. So I'd like to have you come back again, if you will. I would love to. Thank you for having me.